Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Costs at colleges and universities include meal plans, and they are not cheap. If you have a food allergy or intolerance, how do schools accommodate a student's specific diet? Coming up, we'll talk with one school that has made it a priority, Wesleyan University, and we'll hear about what it's like for a college student with food allergies to navigate the school cafeteria. We'll also talk with the mother of a child with food intolerances. West Hartford resident Colleen Brunetti has written a book to help other families. We'll hear from her later. But first, food allergies. What causes them? Are they becoming more common? Do you have a food allergy or intolerance? You can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now joining us by phone now is Dr. Scott Sicherer, Division Chief of Pediatric Allergy and Director of the Jaffe Food Allergy Institute at Mount Sinai's Icon School of Medicine, also author of Food Allergies, A Complete Guide to Eating When Your Life Depends on It. Dr. Sicherer, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, so the question a lot of people have, are food allergies actually on the rise? Well, we certainly have a lot of circumstantial evidence that that's the case. I mean, we did a study back in 1997 asking across the U.S. what's the rate of peanut allergy in children, and back then it was 1 in 250. We repeated that study 11 years later, and it had tripled to 1 in 70, and other studies suggest that over 1% of children have peanut allergy now. So that food and other foods seem to have increased in prevalence. We don't entirely know why, but we seem to are seeing a, a epidemic almost. Now, we're going to talk more about the other allergens beyond peanuts in a little bit, but can we talk specifically about what exactly is an allergy, and are there misconceptions of what it means to be allergic to a particular food? Sure. So a food allergy is an adverse immune response against the food protein, and that's very different than intolerances and such. So the immune system is the part of our body that's supposed to protect us. It's supposed to keep us healthy and fight germs. But if it gets misdirected, it can attack the foods that we're supposed to be able to to tolerate. And in that attack on those foods, we get symptoms like hives and wheezing and swelling and sometimes chronic illnesses as well. The immune system is involved there, and, and the difference between an allergy, the immune system, and intolerance is that with intolerance, it's not really an immune system response. There are potentially digestive issues and other problems that can happen with foods, and it's usually the food allergies that are life-threatening, whereas the intolerances are very disruptive but not typically life-threatening. So I'm thinking of an intolerance that many people may have or have heard of, and that's to uh, lactose. So their body has trouble digesting certain sugars in food? That's right. So with lactose intolerance, actually most of the world's population doesn't have the enzyme to properly digest milk sugar, otherwise known as lactose. And so people with that problem will have gas and and loose stools and bloating if they have too much of the lactase uh, of the lactose, which is the sugar in milk. But it's not it's disruptive, but it's not generally a, a, a severe or life-threatening problem. You spoke earlier about how peanut allergies um, are um, increasing among children. What are some other allergens, Dr. Sisher? So 
although people could be allergic to almost any food out there, the ones that cause most of the troubles, we call them the major allergens, are milk, egg, wheat, soy, peanut, tree nut, fish, and shellfish. And children tend to outgrow uh, allergies to foods like milk, egg, wheat, and soy. So for adults, we see more uh, persistent problems and more severe problems with foods like peanuts, tree nuts, fish, and shellfish. Uh, also in studio with us is Dr. Harini Hussein, allergist and immunologist with St. Francis Hospital. Dr. Hussein, welcome to the show. Thank you. Why is it some people develop allergies and some don't? Well, there is a genetic component to it. Um, so patients who have what is called atopy are, are more likely to have um, food allergies. So if someone um, has an allergy and they have children, it's likely that one of them could have it? or It's likely that they can develop allergies, not necessarily to a food, but to allergies in general. Uh, there, we were talking about perceptions. Uh, when you have a child, you're more in tune with uh, whether or not you want to test to see if certain foods, um, if they have a reaction to it. But talk us through, Dr. Uh, Hussein, uh, the idea that we're actually adults can develop allergies. It's not just uh, when you're young. Right. So uh, signs and symptoms of allergies in terms of foods would be anything from itchy mouth, tingling, itchy skin, hives, and then um, asthma triggers, shortness of breath, wheezing, and then it can progress on to if you have severe reactions to um, shock-like symptoms. And the best thing to do is to speak to your physician and or your allergist to review symptoms because as uh, you want to make sure, is it an allergy versus a intolerance or is it something else? So you need evaluation. Uh, today we're uh, speaking uh, about food allergies and intolerances. If you or someone you know in your family um, has an allergy or intolerance, we'd like to hear from you. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, on the phone with us, Dr. Scott Sisher, Division Chief of Pediatric Allergy and Director of the Jaffe Food Allergy Institute at Mount Sinai's Icon School of Medicine. Uh, when uh, parents decide that there's something going on and they want to test their children. Can you walk us through the process, Dr. Sisherer? What is out there to help uh, families figure out what's going on with their children? Sure. Well, believe it or not, the most important test for diagnosing food allergy is not a blood test or an allergy skin test. It's really the medical history talking through what's happened. So, for example, hives or they look like mosquito bite uh, type of rash. Hives is something that is when someone sees, oh, there must be an allergy to something. But sometimes you can get that rash from a virus. So really talking about what um, the circumstances are of the symptoms is very important to make sure that we're on track that it's a food allergy. And once uh, the physician feels that, yes, you know, these symptoms are, are likely uh, to be associated with a food allergy, it becomes Sherlock Holmes in terms of what would be the trigger food. And so a careful dietary history is taken. So I haven't even mentioned testing yet. It's all about talking, understanding the symptoms and the relationships with the foods. Once the suspicion is there, then testing could be undertaken. And so the types of tests that are available that are simple are allergy skin tests done by an allergist. is a little scratch on the skin, no blood, no pain, a um, little scratch of an extract of the food. And if it's something that the body is able to see in an allergic manner, you get a little bump there, like a little mosquito bite, and you can measure that. 
There's also blood testing that looks for IgE antibodies to foods. That IgE antibody is a fancy term, almost like an antenna that the immune system makes. It's able to see the proteins in the foods that you might be allergic to. Um, the blood test is, uh, could be sent by uh, a general uh, physician, a pediatrician, for example, or by an allergist, and it quantitates the allergic response. Now, both of those tests are measuring that the immune system can see the food. But it's not in and, itself, in and of itself uh, a diagnosis of a food allergy because if I just take someone off the street and I just say, hey, you, put down that peanut butter sandwich, let me test you for peanut, those tests like a skin test or blood test are, to peanut are positive in almost 1 in 10 people. And obviously 1 in 10 people could eat peanut just fine and you know, most of those people are, are going to be fine. And it's going to be a smaller percentage that actually has the allergy, which is why we put together the history with the test result. And the test result is not like a pregnancy test, yes, no, but more like a statistic that helps us determine if, if we think it's a problem. And then if the suspicion uh, is confirmed by the testing, then we, we have the diagnosis. And if there's still ambiguity, the, the uh, final and most uh, uh, specific test is to do a feeding test uh, that, a, that an allergist does under supervision. So if I'm not sure if the person's allergic to peanut, I might actually have them gradually eat it right in front of me to see if it triggers any symptoms. Well, we talked earlier with Dr. Hussein about uh, adults who develop uh, food allergies later in life. Do we know why that happens? Yeah, so there's two kinds of food allergies that will typically uh, develop in adults. Um, one type uh, is just your typical uh, anaphylactic kind of food allergy. It's usually to foods that we don't eat that frequently, like peanuts, tree nuts, fish, or shellfish. The other kind of allergy that actually affects about 1 in 10 people um, that happens uh, more in older uh, individuals and adults, uh, meaning teenagers and adults, is what we call pollen-related food allergy. This is very common. The proteins that are in pollens that people get hay fever from are actually ubiquitous in nature and are in a lot of our foods. So as someone gets, for example, birch pollen allergy, they get an itchy, sneezy, drippy nose in the northeast in uh, this happens like March, April, May, those individuals might find themselves getting mild allergic reactions, usually mouth itch or throat itch, lip tingling, from various raw fruits and vegetables like apples, peaches, carrots in raw form that give them this discomfort feeling because they're basically eating the same protein that's in the pollen that gives them an itchy nose. So they get allergic to it through breathing it in, and then it bothers them when they're eating foods that have similar proteins in them, not on them. It's not that the pollen's on the apple, but it's that the nature has the same kind of protein in the apple. When you cook the food, so apple becomes applesauce or apple juice or a carrot is cooked in, into a soft uh, food, that breaks down that protein, and then these individuals don't have the itchy mouth anymore. And it's unusual for people with this problem to have a severe reaction, but sometimes that happens too. Uh, Nick is calling from Clinton. Nick, go ahead with your question. Hi, yes. So um, my question is that um, my mom has a really bad latex allergy, and so does my wife, and mine's very mild. Um, can these food allergies or product allergies be passed on to, say, the offspring through the genetics? So um, the answer is sort of. Uh, you heard Dr. Hussein mention before that there is a genetic disposition to this. We actually did a study looking at twins with peanut allergy. 
identical twins uh, share all of their genes in common, whereas fraternal twins are sort of like regular siblings who have about half in common. And what we found was for peanut allergy, about 7% of the fraternal twins or like regular siblings share peanut allergy, but 66% of the uh, identical twins shared peanut allergy. And you might say, well, why not 100%? But that's where the environment comes into play. So there is some specificity to sharing a specific allergy, but there's also a lot of variation there as well. Now, you mentioned uh, latex allergy, and um, latex allergy is actually becoming less and less common these days as less latex products are around and the latex in those products are, are bound in real well so they don't kind of leak out and get people allergic as much. But sometimes when people have a latex allergy, they'll have problems with some foods that have similar proteins in them like kiwi and avocado or sometimes uh, banana so, or, or chestnut. So um, sometimes you'll see uh, those types of allergies happening as well. Uh, Dr. Hussein is also with us, allergist and immunologist with St. Francis Hospital. Dr. Hussein, what do you see in your practice in terms of, of people um, getting allergic to something that may not be related to food? Uh, what are some of the common things that you see? Um, what do you what do you see in your practice in terms of if not food allergies? Our caller was asking about latex. So. Right. So you do have um, things like latex, chemical sensitivities, uh, contact dermatitis, um, and then um, eczema, which can be food related or inhalant related. Um, asthmatics. So foods can trigger that, and um, inhalant allergies, environmental things can trigger that too. If someone has a specific allergy, Dr. Hussein, what are the treatment options besides avoiding the particular product right. or food? One, if you can determine what they're allergic to, then you can come up with a better tailored plan. So avoidance is always the first line, followed by um, their antihistamines, um, both H1 blockers, H2 blockers, those would be things people use for, like, say, reflux, so Pepsid, Zantac, things like that. Um, there are anti-inflammatory drugs. Um, you can do desensitization to some um, inhalants, not so much foods anymore, or, although there are protocols out there. And in the future, it looks like we will be able to treat some of these food allergies. Uh, Dr. Sisher, did you want to add to that, this idea of being able to treat sure. further so with I think, food? Um, you know, the avoidance is easier said than done, of course. Uh, we could probably do uh, an hour just talking about uh, what's involved with day-to-day uh, -day management of, of trying to avoid the food allergens with label reading in restaurants and travel and, and airplanes and everything else. Um, in terms of treatment, avoidance right now is the main thing, but also being prepared to recognize and treat a reaction. And that really boils down for people with significant allergies to knowing when and how to use self-injectable epinephrine. Uh, and so it's very important for someone who has a potentially significant uh, allergy to speak with their allergist to really understand and go through the details, maybe some uh, little scenarios of when would I use my medication. But it's very important to get the uh, epinephrine promptly reverses the severe symptoms like breathing problems and circulation problems that happen in anaphylaxis, gives you time to get to an emergency room for more care. It's a very safe medication. If you use it promptly, it reduces the risk of dying. It reduces the risk of needing more doses of medicine or hospitalizations. And the side effects are minimal. It's like having a, a strong cup of coffee in terms of the side effects. So it's really important to carry that medication, know when and how to use it, and talk to your doctor about that. And then, as Dr. Hussein was mentioning, we have a variety 
variety of studies. We have about a dozen studies going on right now at Mount Sinai looking at different treatment options, and there are some studies of uh, potential treatments that are even what we call phase three or final studies before potential FDA approval. There's a lot of hope going on there. Another big area, which if we have time to talk about, is about prevention of food allergy as well, and all of our notions have changed on that and are really um, very different than what we were saying years ago. Oh, on that um, on that note, uh, Dr. Sisher, uh, Emily's calling from New York State. Uh, Emily, you're on the show. You had a question specific to uh, peanuts allergies, I believe. I do, yes. My son is a year and a half years old, and I was wondering if there was something I could do to prevent my son um, that I'm pregnant with from having a peanut allergy. I, When I was pregnant with my first son, I loved peanut butter. I ate it all the time. Is that something I need to be avoiding now? That's a great, uh, superb question and a great segue for me because um, there are new guidelines about preventing uh, particularly peanut allergy that came from an expert panel uh, convened by the government um, from the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease. Uh, I will uh, say that I was on that panel um, as one of the experts. Um, what we looked at in particular was preventing peanut allergy in, in a baby who is at high risk or at moderate risk of, of peanut allergy. In terms of pregnancy, what I'll say um, is that so far there are no studies suggesting uh, that what you eat or don't eat in terms of an allergen uh, plays a role, so don't be on any guilt trip about that. I ate too much or didn't eat enough peanut, don't be on a guilt trip about it. But um, what we do see is that a healthy diet is very important. And so, um, you know, you've probably read about healthy fats and, you know, those are the kinds of foods that you want to eat and are anti-inflammatory in terms of uh, allergy. In terms of once the baby is born, um, there, were a, there was a study that um, was done um, a couple of years ago now called the LEAP study that indicated that for children at high risk of peanut allergy who didn't already have peanut allergy, that's an important point, that earlier ingestion of infant-safe forms of peanut in the diet, like as early as four months for, for babies who are at high risk and that they have severe eczema that marks them as high risk, or if they have another food allergy like egg allergy that would mark them at high risk, getting that food into the diet early might actually prevent peanut allergy. And so the new recommendations are uh, split into three parts. One is for babies... Uh, again, as early as four to six months, if they have severe eczema or an egg allergy or potentially we could say other food allergy, then getting an evaluation by an allergist to look to make sure that there isn't already a peanut allergy and then introducing peanut and again, an infant safe form. So peanut butter and peanuts are not safe for infants. It has to be smoothed out or mixed in a, in a way that it makes it more safe for the baby. It would be introduced and then actually kept at fairly high uh, amounts in the diet routinely, like three times a week um, for years actually to, to prevent allergy. But there was an 80% reduction um, in this particular group of, of peanut allergy in the infants who uh, the families did this for compared to those who continued avoidance. And then for children who have uh, less risk factors like less eczema or, or uh, you know, milder uh, eczema, uh, having peanut as early as six months of age is recommended probably with um, out having to do a significant evaluation because they're probably not at high risk of already having a peanut allergy. And then the recommendation is that for everyone else, just you know, add it to the diet without specifically avoiding it. You know, 17 years ago, the recommendations were if you're allergy prone, don't give peanut to younger kids or babies. Wait until they're three or, or more years old. And, and now we've turned that completely upside down in terms of the new recommendations. So talk to your pediatrician about this stuff is the bottom line. 
Today we're talking about food allergies and intolerances. On the phone with us, Dr. Scott Sischerer, uh, who also wrote the book, Food Allergies, A Complete Guide for Eating When Your Life Depends on It. We spent a lot of time talking, uh, Dr. Sischerer, also with Dr. Hussein about what causes allergies, ways to prevent and treat. Uh, but if we see this increase happening, you know, what perceptions uh, uh, do the just general public have about allergies and intolerances that can hurt people uh, that have them? Maybe they don't take them seriously. Who, who are you? Dr. Sichero, you go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. So um, you're absolutely right. I mean, there, it really takes a community to keep a person with food allergies safe. You know, just as, a, as an example, um, we did a study on bullying in children with food allergies, and we found that essentially children with food allergies are getting bullied at twice the rate of uh, children without food allergies. And, we, you know, we, we could have theories about that, but ultimately to keep that child safe, there has to be a community that is compassionate to the difficulty in living with this. When we do quality of life studies on living with food allergy, we see that people are affected as much as uh, individuals who have illnesses that put them in wheelchairs. So, the you know, living with a food allergy means, you know, tw- like 24-7, every meal, every holiday, the holidays are coming up now, uh, Thanksgiving and, and, and Christmas and, and New Year's and all of these things. Everything's about food, birthday parties. Every time a, a family or child is reaching for uh, a snack or a meal, they have to worry, you know, does this have the allergen? It's like living in a minefield. And so really having a community that's looking out for the best interests of people, keeping them safe and understanding uh, is very, very important uh, in, in, ter- in terms of keeping people safe. Uh, Dr. Hussein, uh, are you seeing perceptions changing? Um, yes. So in the past, you'd see people would sit there and say, oh, no, what do you mean you have an allergy? You're just making it up or the child is just being fussy. So at least people are aware that there are food allergies, but you still have to do a lot of education of family, friends, um, co-workers. And coming up, we're going to talk about how uh, schools uh, react and accommodate both students uh, through K through 12 and also in higher education. I want to take one more quick call. And if you, again, want to join the conversation this hour, 860-275-7266. One more call before the break. Anne is calling from Canton. Anne, go ahead with your question. Hi, um, I'm 56 and I have celiac, which I um acquired um in my late 40s it's um in my family there's about six members in my family that have celiac and i was of the understanding that it was an autoimmune disease and i thought one of the doctors said earlier that it was more of a digestive problem um i also have lactose intolerance which is very recent and a soy intolerance and um i also was told by a GI doctor that, you know, when you have celiac, they might want to mention having you tested for um, lactose because they seem to go together. So that's a great uh, point that you're making because we actually didn't give uh, any information about celiac disease. And so sometimes celiac disease is called like gluten intolerance, but I think that's sometimes not a good use of, of the terminology. Um, when I was speaking about intolerance before, it was more about a digestive problem, but you're 100% correct that celiac disease involves the immune system. It's not a, a problem that we usually categorize as a typical allergy, like peanut allergy or milk or egg allergy, but rather uh, as its own uh, di- disorder or disease. And individuals who have celiac disease can have issues um, with a variety of problems in the body due to the inflammation that 
that happens from ingesting gluten, like wheat products or rye or barley, for example. So, so thank you for calling and for bringing that up because it's really, I think, a different category that, that deserves its own uh, discussion. And we'll talk about that uh, later in the hour. But I want to thank Dr. Scott Schisserer again, Division Chief of Pediatric Allergy and Director of the Jaffe Food Allergy Institute at Mount Sinai's Icon School of Medicine, author of the book, Food Allergies, A Complete Guide to Eating When Your Life Depends on It. Dr. Schisserer, thanks again for your, your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Now, Dr. Harini Hussein from St. Francis Hospital in Hartford will st- stay with us as we continue our conversation about food allergies and intolerances. Coming up, a West Hartford mother joins us. Her son has a food intolerance. And later, colleges and universities have expensive meal plans. How do they accommodate students who have special diets? We'll find out after the break. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Earlier we talked about food allergies and what causes them. If a parent has an allergy, we were learning a little bit more about whether it's likely for a child to also get an allergy or intolerance. Now, a state task force found that an estimated 8% of school children in Connecticut have food allergies. Is your child one of them? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. In studio with us is Dr. Harini Hussein, an allergist and immunologist with St. Francis Hospital in Hartford. And joining us now is Colleen Brunetti, a West Hartford resident and parent of a child with food intolerances. Colleen, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. So we we mentioned a little earlier about the difference. Tell us what the difference is between an intolerance and an allergy for, for your son. Sure. So as was mentioned earlier in the segment, a food allergy is an immune response, and that's not what we've experienced. So he has a true food intolerance, which stems more within the digestive system. So for him, that looks like a little boy who was kind of having a hard time growing. He was um, quite skinny and petite, and he was sick all the time um, with colds and ear infections and tummy issues. And we really couldn't get to the bottom of why that was because he had a pretty healthy home. Um, he would drink like kale smoothies and, um, you know, everything seemed right about the environment, but the way his body was responding wasn't correct. So where did you turn, Colleen, when you noticed uh, um, these symptoms? Uh, did you feel like you you knew where to turn or that your doctors were receptive to the, the things you're observing? Well, as pediatrician is great, but it was sort of a hard mystery to solve. So I was actually in school to be a certified integrative nutrition health coach. And I learned more about the difference between food allergies and intolerances and how intolerances can pop up in sort of unusual ways. And I went, aha, I think I know what this is. So I took him to a naturopath and um, we did an elimination diet. So we took dairy out of his diet for six weeks. And when we put it back in, he uh, he was fine for the six weeks. And then when we put it back in, he got violently ill, um, threw up so badly. He collapsed on the bathroom floor and promptly spiked a fever 24 hours later. And we said, okay, I think we're done with dairy. Um, and then we took out wheat um, a little bit later at actually his request and saw a, a decrease in behaviors and tummy issues. And so we finally solved the issue that was going on. And then we had everything um, done by blood work as well, just to make sure. When it was time for him to enter school, um, how did you navigate that with uh, the elementary school with the administrators? 
So the schools have been really great. I think they've gotten much, much better over the last several years of understanding that kids have food allergies and intolerances of all sorts. It's depended a little bit on which school he is in. His elementary school had a fantastic a set of allergen-free foods for him to choose from. His middle school now that he's a little older, it's been a little bit harder. So the responsibility really remains on me to make sure I have a good stocked freezer and send him with a lot of foods just in case because I don't want to rely on a school that's feeding hundreds of kids to make sure that he's got the right thing. I mentioned that uh, you live in West Hartford. Uh, Are there any guidelines or laws that schools around the state have to follow in terms of, uh, you know, again, um, having these choices or limiting certain things because there may be children in a classroom that have an allergy or intolerance? You know, I'd have to double check on state law, but most most schools do have some sort of policy in place. You certainly hear a lot about the peanut-free tables. Um, My daughter's preschool right now is 100% nut-free, and actually my son's middle school is also completely nut-free. So they've been putting in a lot of policies on their own to protect the kids, which I think is really great. Um, I did hear mentioned a little bit earlier that there is a high prevalence of bullying with kids with these more anaphylactic true food allergies. And I think that's where the next big set of changes need to start happening from the schools. Uh, Dr. Hussein, um, any guidelines of the state that schools have to fall within the state? Right. So food allergies do fall under Americans with Disabilities Act. And so schools, institutions do have to provide reasonable accommodations. Uh, We heard Colleen mention uh, bullying and is that something that you have heard from your patients, uh, whether there's a family member in a school and how um, there's perceptions around that and how the child is received? Right. So food allergies um, and or intolerances, those children and people do have some bullying issues. So probably about 30 percent of those patients will report some form of bullying. And a lot of it is they um, don't feel like they belong. They end up drawing attention to themselves, which, you know, they other patient, people don't like um, to make accommodations, and they think they're being fussy. Um, you see it on TV shows with um, allergies in general. People who are asthmatic, they show them using inhalers and kind of making a joke about it. So patients with allergies, food allergies, um, sensitivities do get bullied. Colleen, you met, you brought this up. So what has been Aiden's experience and um, how has that prompted you then to try to help other families? So Aiden, he was, I think, four or five when we finally figured this out. So he was at a good age to start self-advocating. I would say that um, my job has centered around educating other parents and the school. And people are, have been really kind to us, but I talk to a lot of food allergy moms who really struggle where a mom will say, well, everybody can have this birthday cake except Jimmy. And so it really, I think, starts at home with the parents understanding just how important total avoidance of these foods are and then imparting empathy on onto their children so that when the peers get together, they understand that they need to treat each other with kindness and then also with, with the children who are um, allergic or intolerant, just becoming incredible advocates for themselves as, as they're able. Now, Colleen, you're, wor- you're working on a children's book? I am, yeah. Aiden, the Wonder Kid Who Could Not Be Stopped. It's a food allergy and intolerance story. And this is something you're hoping will help uh, shed light on the fact that you know, children may um, be treated differently. Um, can you talk, walk us through the storyline? Sure. So it's based loosely on a bedtime story I used to tell my son about Aiden the Wonder Kid. 
And then a couple of years ago, I sat down and wrote this manuscript and gave the Wonder Kid food intolerances. And he's a little superhero who has all these wonderful powers where he can, you know, leap over the couch in a single bound and soar across the the beach at the ocean. But then something is stealing his superpowers away and making him sick and very, very droopy. And as you might guess, those things are food intolerances. And I wrote it because when my son was diagnosed, he was old enough to understand he had eaten one way and now had to eat a different way. And that different way was different than his peers. So when he went to birthday parties, he couldn't have the cake and the ice cream and the pizza like they could. And he was completely bummed out. And understandably so. It's a huge change to make. And so I wrote the story to empower children to really take control, take ownership, and be proud of who they are and knowing that when they feed their bodies just right, that's when their superpowers are at their very best. I wanted to take a phone call, and you can join the conversation. Again, we're talking about food allergies and intolerances on where we live. In studio with me, Colleen Brunetti, author and uh, mother of a child uh, with a food intolerance. In studio also, Dr. Harini Hussein, allergist and immunologist with St. Francis Hospital in Hartford. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Joe's calling. Uh, Joe, you're on the show. What's your question or comment? Hi. My comment is this. Um, I... I'm looking for balance on this topic, uh, especially with regards to honeybee allergies. We face a crisis with honeybees in, in the world right now. It's a good thing when people set up a beehive in their backyard. But here in Connecticut, when someone does that right now, there's a panic about allergies. There are neighbors who say, my grandson is allergic, and they, they sent the police to my door because I had set up a beehive. And I stood there talking to the officer next to my beehive saying, you know, all of the regulations are on my side. All of the ordinances uh, treat beekeeping as an agricultural use. um, And I haven't done anything to violate any law. When I looked into it deeper, talking to the state's bee inspector, talking to the head of the Connecticut Bee Association uh, relatives, uh, there's a movement to try to push bees out of neighborhoods, um, when you ask the family to document that it's honeybees that their grandson is allergic to, 90-some percent of the time, they don't come up with the documentation because there are all sorts of stinging insects, and being allergic to a white-faced hornet is not going to bother you with honeybees. Um, I just, I'm just trying to inject out there that um, there needs to be some balance rather than hysteria about allergies, and I'll hang up and listen to what you have to say. Thank you, Joe, for your uh, comment. Um, so that's interesting. That's something something I've heard before. But just people are uh, very sensitive to what might be impacting their children. Uh, this is a beekeeper that is dealing with a, a specific neighbor issue. But let's talk a little bit about that, Doctor uh, Hussein. Because uh, again, you know, parents worry about their children and they want to keep them safe. But what's a, I guess a more responsible way of going out there and try to get the information that this is a, something that would endanger their children? Right. So um, in terms of food allergies, you need to know what your child is allergic to. In general, um, so inhalation steam is not going to cause anaphylaxis. It may make you have a little wheezing and tingling, but in general, that will not happen. So you need to teach your children and um, yourself what are safe foods, what are not safe foods. And if in doubt, you don't eat that food. 
That's interesting. We were talking about, you know, again, this shows specific to food allergies, but we know people have allergies to other things in the environment. Why is it that it's food allergies that can that there's a potential for anaphylaxis reaction? Well, there's a risk of anaphylaxis, as the gentleman said, also with stinging insects. Um, but food allergies has increased in prevalence. Well, I do want to thank uh, Colleen Brunetti for coming in. Again, she's a West Hartford mother um, who's written a book, uh, Aiden the Wonder Kid, um, about uh, food intolerances and not treating children differently because they may have an allergy or intolerance. Um, Colleen, when you talk with uh, parents um, from your district or even across the state who also have children with an allergy or intolerance, you know, what are some of the things that they want to see in terms of being responsive in their communities? I think the biggest thing they're looking for is understanding, like I mentioned, from the parents on down. And then also, um, I do see a lot of concern about the bullying. I think the other thing is being aware, even if you're not in a peanut-free zone like a, a school might be designated, if you're going to the playground or the children's museum, if you're going to a place where a lot of kids tend to congregate, maybe be mindful about not packing those peanut butter crackers because it can be as quick as a contact allergy. So a child has peanut butter on their hands, they touch the slide, the child with the allergy follows them, and now we have a problem because they touch the peanut. So just being aware um, of your environment and who might come into contact with the food that you're not necessarily handing out. Again, Colleen Brunetti from West Hartford. Thank you so much for coming in. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. After the break, families can usually come up with pretty good system to deal with food allergies or intolerances, but what happens when your child heads to college? Are school cafeterias, whether on college campuses, a safe place to eat? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, from Harvey Weinstein to Matt Lauer, seemingly untouchable celebrities are falling left and right as women come forward with allegations. But sexual misconduct is not just a Hollywood problem. On the next Where We Live, we'll explore harassment across industries, including many cases that aren't making the spotlight. Does the Me Too movement have power to create lasting change? You can join the conversation. That's on Thursday. Now, today's show was pitched to us by WMPR intern Sarah Bly. Now, common perception around food allergies is that people are born with them, but Sarah's food allergies started just a few years ago. She's now a college student. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about when you discovered that you have food allergies. Um, yeah, it came on really suddenly. It started with like a rash and just um, the next thing you know, I, I could no longer eat eight different types of food, and it was really difficult at first. My whole relationship with food changed, um, and then I had to be, you know, now I have to be really conscious about what I eat and, and where I eat. Were you surprised that this was something that came on in your early 20s? Yeah, it was surprising, really, um, you know, and it was difficult to deal with um, at first because, you know, you, you go to the grocery store and you're used to buying certain things and now you have to change what you're eating and, and where. How did uh, others react to the this food allergy that you, or food allergies I should say, that you uh, experienced in your early 20s, a reaction from your family and even your peers? Um, you know, some, some people were just really understanding. Um, and then, you know, f for others I think maybe they, they couldn't grasp 
um, grasp the significance of cross-contamination. But my family and I, um, it kind of brought us closer. We had to uh, learn a whole new way of cooking and baking with eggs and without eggs and things like that. I mentioned that you're a college student, so now that you're enrolled in college, uh, how do you navigate the cafeteria? Um, well, it, it, thankfully, I, I live off campus. I unfortunately don't eat at school. Unfortunately, I have been sick from eating at school, and, and now because of that, it makes you so anxious, so nervous that that reaction would happen again. Uh, Dr. Hussein, uh, allergist and immunologist with uh, St. Francis Hospital in Hartford. How should people with food allergies uh, uh, navigate a a college campus or university, whether it's themselves or their children? Right. So, um, and this comes up in the practice a lot. So what I tell patients is when you start going and interviewing schools and seeing what their facilities are, one of the things is to see what types of accommodations they can have regarding the meal plan, regarding what they can do for you. And sometimes um, some schools are better than others. And um, some um, kids with multiple allergies, they may be better off in a single room with the ability to cook or being taken off the meal plan. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of these um, colleges... uh, you know, they you your freshman year, you have to live on campus and you have to have the meal plan. But not always. Uh, the options aren't always good for everyone, depending exactly. on how severe their food allergy is. Uh, we wanted to bring into the conversation now uh, Laura Patey, Associate Dean for Student Academic Resources at Wesleyan University. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Now, how does Wesleyan University uh, work with students and even staff that have food allergies and intolerances? Um, we've we've established a fairly comprehensive program at Wesleyan. Um, we were uh, lucky to be part of a pilot project through FAIR, which is Food Allergy Research and Education Group. Um, and a couple of years ago, we submitted an application to be part of a pilot project uh, to implement the best practices guidelines that co- had come out of a couple of um, summits that FAIR conducted um, in 2014. And um, so we've been able to implement accommodations um, across campus, not just in the dining halls, because one of the things that's really important is that food has a presence on college campuses in in multiple venues. So we've really... um, done not only specific accommodations for students who have food allergies or celiac, but also looking at education and outreach for res life staff, student staff, um, to be aware of food allergies so that they were cognizant of that when doing programming in the residence halls, for example. What prompted Wesleyan to go this step? Because I was looking at the list of other schools that are pilots that are doing this pilot program with uh, FAIR, and uh, you're the only one in Connecticut. There's a couple in Massachusetts. Uh, When we hear about the prevalence of of allergies and intolerances, is this something, is it surprising that more schools aren't taking these, these steps? Well, I think that there are certainly more schools that are taking the steps than might be part of a pilot project at FAIR. So I I do want to say that, that um, 
you know, there are many schools who uh, we've distributed the best practices guidelines to all of the the schools in Connecticut through um, an organization called Connecticut Ahead, the Association of Higher Ed and Disability. We we featured a presentation last spring where we presented the best practices guidelines um, so that other schools would have an opportunity to be aware of. Um, it really requires a collaborative approach, and so it isn't. Um, I think that that's probably the trickiest thing for schools to to really embrace. It requires working um, the accessibility services or disability services office, working with health services, working with food services, and working with Res Life, um, and and to really collaborate on a program. So I think that there are more schools that are doing. Um, you know, making attempts at providing accommodations, perhaps some more successful than others. I want to take a call now. Uh, Kaya is calling from Hartford. Kaya, you have experience uh, on a college campus. Uh, tell me a little bit about your story. Yeah, hi. Um, so I have some weird allergies, um, and I found it pretty isolative to have an allergy or food allergy on a college campus. Um, oftentimes, you can't get accommodated by the cafeterias, um, and that's where you really make friends when you start college. Um, so um, I think it's just, it's interesting if there are other ways that schools can find ways for people to congregate um, or allow you to um, bring in your own lunch, because sometimes there's this trust issue that people are gonna steal food and not have a lunch voucher mm-hmm. if they don't have a food voucher. Um, or a cafeteria pass. Um, yeah, so it's just, it's hard when you've got a food allergy or multiple in my case. Well, Kaya, thank you for those comments. Um, Laura Patey, can you respond? I mean, you're, I'm sure you've heard this from the, the group of students that you put together when you were working on this pilot about, you know, dealing with feelings of isolation when a student has a intolerance or is allergic to something. And, and there is a fear if they're in the in the cafeteria and if something says that um, it's okay for them to eat, but what if there is some kind of cross-contamination? I mean, how do you respond to that? Sure. I think that um, Kai makes a very important point, um, and that is that meal times on a college campus are are m- even more than purely social. Um, it's often a time for students in a class to work collaboratively on a project or an assignment, and so we want to make sure that um, that students are able to you know eat safely in the in the dining halls on campus. But one of the things that I've discovered over the years of doing this is even when schools attempt to make um, appropriate accommodations for students, if they're not planful about it, um, let's say Kaya comes into a dining hall with a group of friends and she needs to have particular food prepared um, and everybody else grabs food off the line and then Kaya's waiting for her food to be prepared. By the time she sits down to have her meal, her friends have already finished eating and are maybe ready to leave. And so it just adds to that isolation. So one of the things that we've done, um, and I know other schools are also doing this, is is offer the opportunity for students with food allergies to pre-order their meals. So they can indicate to the dining manager uh, that they plan to come in for lunch at 1230 and that there's a particular menu item and they want it prepared and and they want to ensure that it doesn't contain any of the allergens um, that that they're that they are specifically susceptible to. So um 
we plate those meals, or the, I should say dining services, plates those meals and, and keeps them off the, the food offline. And so the student can come in and get that, that serving, that, um, that plate of, of pasta perhaps that's gluten-free or, or a different you know, um, meal that was part of the menu that is safe for that student to eat. And they can pick it up at the time when they're going to be there with their friends. And so they're able to just grab and have lunch with everyone else at the same time. Uh, we were talking about um, more schools, uh, Laura, that uh, you say are, are um, interested in this and that are uh, contacting Wesleyan with the idea that you are part of this pilot uh, with uh, FAIR. Um, in terms of the, the big companies that provide uh, the food to college campuses and universities, uh, do you see, is there a change happening with the types of options they have? So not just, uh, you know, peanut allergies or gluten intolerances, but also uh, looking at uh, celiac disease and just there's very there's many different things that someone may have going on with them, and I'm just curious how these companies are responding. Um, yeah, I think that there's a real there's a real range um, when it comes to the the dining services vendors that you might see on campuses. Some college campuses actually do their own um, run their own dining service, while others use vendors. Um, we have Bon Appetit, which is a wonderful vendor. It's a cook from scratch vendor, and so they're able to identify the elements of any meal that's prepared um, and so are really particular about the sourcing of the food that they get. Um, although sometimes it still is difficult if it's a secondary source and they don't know, then they're clear to say that we're unsure about this particular item on the menu because we're unsure because it's not a primary source food that's coming into them. Um, but I think that some of the vendors are better than others. I think that it's just such a growing population on campus. We're seeing um, a significant growth of the number of students with food allergies and celiac who are present on campus now than even five years ago. And so I think that the vendors are going to have to be more responsive if they're not already. Oh, we just have a couple of minutes left. I wanted to go back to Dr. Harini Hussein, allergist and immunologist with St. Francis Hospital. Now, you have a, a personal uh, experience with this. Your daughter has celiac disease. How did she navigate college? Um, it was difficult. Um, but eventually, after a lot of work, she did have accommodations made so that she did make a menu and have to give it to the school, and then they would provide her with the food. That's difficult when you have to deal with uh, just trying to do well in school and deal with a new schedule. Right. What recommend? What kind of advice do you have for parents to help their children? So again, it's better if you can find a school that can make accommodations. Um, schools where they cook from scratch are going to at least be able to identify what's in the food, um, and you need to have a conversation with them as to what is what your child requires. I want to thank Dr. Hussein again from St. Francis Hospital. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Also, uh, Laura Paty, Associate Dean for Student Academic Resources at Wesleyan University. Thank you for describing your program, Laura. Thank you very much. And Sarah Bly, WMPR production intern. Thank you for sharing your experiences and pitching today's show. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, the show, a uh, special thanks to Carmen Boskov, also a producer of Where We Live, and to Kion Wolf, who is our technical producer. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>